everybody, and welcome to the first episode of what I'm calling Issue by Issue colon Crisis, or Crisis and Beyond, something like that. We're workshopping it still. Uh, we've got it in the old writer's room where we've got a big board with a bunch of different names on it. As usual, I'm your host, Nick Byers, and uh, let's explain a little bit about what this show is and how it's going to differ from uh, IBI Issue by Issue Golden Age which is the show you all know and love. I don't know if you love it. Hopefully you do. But so this show is a compromise that I'm making with myself and with you, the audience, to allow me to cover some newer issues, some of the stuff that is actually important in the DC Comics universe, stuff that has been, you know, solidified into fact because the Golden Age stuff, a lot of that stuff gets rewritten after this point in time, after after Crisis on Infinite Earths, where a lot of stuff happens and, and a lot of stuff gets rewritten in the history and stuff. So from this point on, things actually matter more, or at least I think they do in terms of the DC multiverse. So I really wanted to cover that stuff and also get to give me a break from covering the Golden Age comics because they're a little bit silly, if you haven't noticed uh, from the past issues and stories that we've covered. So let's start. This show is going to work basically the same way as uh, Issue by Issue Golden Age. We're going to uh, contextualize these issues in what was going on, some of the big headline events of the times they're coming out. We're going to read them in chronological order. I thought perhaps about doing Crisis on Infinite Earths, going through all those issues and all the tie-ins and stuff, and then starting from there chronologically but the problem is is that the universe reset that happens after crisis on infinite earths is what's what's known as a sort of rolling reboot and so things slowly but surely solidify into what the proper continuity is so superman starts over with man of steel wonder woman starts over with uh, issue number one of wonder woman and all that kind of stuff other other issues other Things don't get sort of retconned until much later, so it's really hard. So I just decided we're going to start at Crisis on Infinite Earths number one and then move on chronologically from there. Uh, I think that's I think that's good. I think it's it's important to maintain the reason for this podcast, which is a chronology, moving chronologically through the DC Universe issue by issue, and it wouldn't really make sense to read a bunch of issues that span an entire year, and then either jump back or kind of skip over everything else that happened in that year, and start from the end. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, issue number one of Crisis on Infinite Earths, but before that, we're going to set the scene. Real world history about what was going on when all these issues, which all came out on the same day, all the issues, and that's going to happen a lot more in this one than it did in, or does, in IBI Golden Age, uh, because a lot more comics were coming out at this time than at that time in the 1940s, which is what we're up to uh, at the moment. Uh, so they all came out on January 3rd, 1985, so... That's the beginning of the year. Happy New Year to the 1985 people listening. Uh, January 1st, 1985, the Internet's domain name system is established. Uh, the domain, domain name system is what we all know about the Internet. You know, 
you you register to a name domain name. Sorry, I don't know why it's so difficult for me to say domain names. I think it's all the ends. Uh, where things like Wikipedia, registered Wikipedia.org and stuff like that. Things to identify, things on the internet, because at this point in time, the internet is a very, very bare bones kind of situation, kind of system for interconnectedness. Uh, Greenland withdraws uh, from the European Economic Community as a result of an agreement between them and uh, the U European Union. Vodafone launches in the UK, which is the f UK's first mobile phone network. And Vodafone, I looked it up, stands for Voice Data Phone, uh, spelling phone, F-O-N-E, because it's the 80s and it's cool to misspell things, you know? Yeah. VH1, a uh, new music video channel, uh, begins broadcasting on American cable television. Aimed at an older demographic than MTV, the first video played is Marvin Gaye's The Star Spangled Banner. Uh, God bless America, you know? America. Uh, Eastern Airlines Flight 980, uh, which is a Boeing 727, flying at night in poor weather, crashes into Bolivia's Mount Illimani, at an altitude of 19,600 feet, uh, or 6,000 meters for the people who use that uh, measuring system, uh, killing all 19 passengers and 10 crew. The lost remains of the plane and those on board are not found for a further 31 years. And it's crazy because planes still get lost all the time now in 2023. Crazy. Uh, January 3rd, the day that these issues came out, the U.S. Senator Bob Dole becomes... Uh, Republican leader of the United States Senate and Senate Majority Leader, which is a very important uh, position. And Bob Dole is will either later try to run for president or vice president, something like that. Uh, he's I don't think he's related to the Dole Fruit Company of Hawaii. So, uh, yeah. So let's that's that's setting the scene for these issues in this episode. Uh, so let's move on to the actual issues. And we're going to be starting off with a whopper, Crisis on Infinite Earths number 1, released January 3rd, 1985, cover date April 1985. Uh, there are a ton of debuts in this, but first I'm going to tell you the authors. Another thing that's going to change in uh, issue by issue Crisis is that there's a lot more authors, and they each have specific titles. So... Uh, we're going to go through a long list. Uh, writer, Marv Wolfman. Plotter, Len Wein. Plotter again as well, Robert Greenberg. Penciler, George Perez. Inker, uh, Dick Giordano. Letterer, John Costanza. And colorist, Anthony Tolan. I think that's really great that they all are, like, specifically, they each have their specific role instead of vaguely, you know, they're all a little bit written by Gardner Fox, like uh, the Golden Age. Now let's talk about the debuts that are happening in this issue. There's a lot. Um, some debuts straight up in the universe, other issue, other debuts just in this podcast because the characters have been introduced prior to Crisis on Infinite Earths in issues that we are not covering. So, But I will try to explain who they are when I talk about them. So, debuts in the DC Universe. Pariah, who we don't learn a lot about in this first issue, but he's got a sick costume. He's a great character. Alexander Alex Luthor, who is the son of Earth-3 Lex Luthor. Earth-3 being the sort of morality-swapped Earth where 
it's it's ruled over by the crime syndicate of America rather than the Justice League of America, which the Justice League doesn't rule over the Earth, but I digress. And uh, one of the few superheroes on the Earth is Lex Luthor, um, the counterpart to the Lex Luthor in Earth 1 and Earth 2, who is a villain. Ted Kord, uh, Blue Beetle. This is not his first comic book debut. This is his first DC appearance because this is the first time he's being used after DC acquired Charlton Comics. Um, the Blue Beetle and Captain Adam and Peacemaker and... Uh, oh, gosh... Um, other characters from Charlton Comics, oh, the question, duh, uh, are the inspiration or sort of backbone of the characters from Alan Moore's Watchmen. Uh, he wasn't allowed to use those Charlton characters because DC wanted to use them, so he had to use his own characters, but he basically just name-swapped them. It was, it's a very funny, uh, occurrence. Uh, that is his first, uh, this is, a, this is... His first appearance in DC Comics, Ted Cord, Blue Beetle. Now, podcast debuts, uh, these are characters that have been introduced in DC Comics previously, but have not been on the show because we haven't covered the issues that they are in. And it's a long list, so let's just go through it. Uh, we've got the Earth-3 Crime Syndicate, Ultraman, Powering, Johnny Quick, Owlman, Superwoman. Uh, we've got Lila Michaels slash Harbinger. Lila debuted in uh, the New Teen Titans Annual Number 2. Harbinger, this is her first DC appearance. Uh, King Solovar of Gorilla City, and King Solovar, an easy way to remember, is he's the non-evil uh, talking gorilla who's in Gorilla City. He's not Gorilla Grodd. He's a good one. Uh, Dawnstar of the Legion of Superheroes. Firebrand from the All-Star Squadron on Earth 2. Psycho Pirate, a villain. Simon with a P at the beginning. You know, like PSI, Psy, Mun, uh, Villain, Obsidian from, uh, he's a good guy from, I believe, the Justice Society. Uh, John Stewart, Green Lantern, Dr. Polaris, a villain, Arian, Lord of Atlantis, a, a Lord of Atlantis way, way, way in the past, Geoforce, and Cyborg. Geoforce is a member of the Outsiders. He has. Uh, Earth manipulation powers. He is the brother of Terra of the Teen Titans. And Cyborg, of course, is Cyborg from the Teen Titans. He's great. Now, whew, whew, let me just catch my breath. That was so many names, so many characters. Oh, it's only going to keep, the list is only going to get longer. Uh, also, I should say Firestorm and Killer Frost also appear in this issue, but we'll also be covering an issue of Firestorm later where they both appear. Uh, I believe. So we'll cover them in that one. So Crisis on Infinite Earths. Let's start out with the cover. It's a great cover. It is uh, multiple Earths kind of sh slamming into each other and like exploding. And we see we see Dawnstar. We see Blue Beetle. We see uh, Earth 2 Superman. We see Arian, Lord of Atlantis. We see Cyborg. We see Firestorm. And we see a man in green and black with a, a cape uh, and white kind of sh shirt sleeves. It, this is Pariah, uh, but we haven't, we don't know who it is. And I mean, just imagine picking this up when it first came out, like, whoa, what's going on? What is this? You know, there's a big crisis at the top. It says 50 DC at the top because 1985 technically is the 50th anniversary of DC, or at least one of the companies that DC was a part of. 
uh, or was a part of DC. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, there's actually inside, uh, there's also on the back cover, there's more characters. There's uh, there's Superwoman, there's Obsidian, there's Dr. Polaris, Geoforce, Killer Frost, Ultraman, Solovar. I think I actually see Batman, even though he doesn't appear. Oh, I bet that's Owlman. I bet that's Owlman. Uh, we see John Stewart Green Lantern. We see Lex Luthor from Earth 3. We see Har- uh, Firebrand. We see Simon. It's just a really, really great cover, back and front. It's just, it is, it is great. And a little tidbit, here's a little history about me personally. This is actually one of the first DC comics I ever read. I don't know why I knew about it or where I heard it from. Uh, It might have been from this really great podcast that uh, I like called Geek History Lesson. They might have talked about Crisis on Infinite Earths, and then that got me and was like, oh, dang, that sounds sick. Mm -hmm. And it was sick, but uh, the problem is that I didn't know basically anything about uh, the DC continuity at the time or half of these characters, so it was a tough read. It was a tough read. Uh, Probably not the best uh, jumping on point for uh, me as an early comic book reader. But hopefully with me being here to explain things, uh, you have a better time with the story than I did. Uh, But let's get into it. So we start off uh, with uh, darkness, you know, before the universe was created. Uh, We then see an explosion of energy and force and these spheres coming out of a a bright light in the darkness. And suddenly, a multiverse was born. Multiple Earths, multiple universes, all different in their own bespoke ways. Uh, We then cut to just... Just just crisis. Uh, Just such a big crisis going on. Uh, We see a white wall of force kind of encapsulating an earth and earth it says well it says this is the planet earth but obviously we know that there's not just one planet earth yet uh and it is this wall of force is basically just eating everything in its path the people on this earth are going just buck wild crazy they're running for their lives we see a man in a green cloak and he is lamenting uh, the death of this earth and he's a single tear comes out of his eyes he's kind of narrating what the people are thinking they they're running for their lives F- they fear that prayer is not enough that whatever god they speak to would not be enough to stop what is happening he he talks about being drawn to uh, the destruction of of this earth he tries to save a young boy, but the young boy is eaten by this wall of force, and he wants to die, this man in green. Uh, but uh, instead, he begins to disappear, and he says, Another earth is to be swallowed by the dark, and I, I must attend, as I have the hundreds which have died before it. Uh, then this earth and this universe is eaten by the white wall of force, and darkness is all that remains. We then jump to Earth-3, the evil Earth, and we see Power Man and Ultraman in the midst of fighting these volcanoes that have sprung up in the middle of a city. The, this Earth is going insane. It is, it is falling apart. Uh, Ultraman, who is the evil version of Superman, and Power Ring, who is the evil version of Green Lantern, 
are talking about how they don't seem to be strong enough to fight nature and this this wall of force that is coming and they keep saying like oh we use these great powers to you know bend this earth to our our will but now we're trying to save it isn't that ironic and i think that's irony i'm not sure i'm never sure about what is irony and what isn't we then cut to a different part of earth 3 where Owlman and Johnny Quick, who is... Owlman is the evil version of Batman. Johnny Quick is the evil version of The Flash with a stupid name like Johnny Quick. It's dumb. The Flash, very cool. Johnny Quick, lame. Uh, Owlman has a very stupid costume. Owlman, I think, in later years has a very cool Batman-like costume. But this Owlman is, looks dumb because he has basically the Batman torso costume. You know, gray, gray, you know, leotard and uh, blue underpants or black underpants on the outside, blue or black boots, and then a blue or black cape. But then his headpiece, his cowl, is is just the head of an owl, uh, and it is the color of an owl. It's, like, tan, feathered, and it has eyes and a beak, and that's kind of lame. Uh, and his face isn't covered. His face is all out in the open. I guess because he doesn't need to hide his secret identity. Uh, but, but it's dumb. It looks dumb. Uh... And they're, they're crying. They're like, oh, we're going to die. This sucks. This sucks so bad. Uh, we then cut to uh, the good version of Lex Luthor, who in this universe is just called Luthor. He's got a big L on his uh, chest plate, mostly because he's a big loser. He's always beaten by the crime syndicate. That's why they run the world. And he uh, can't stop them. He, being a smarty pants, knows that this is a wall of antimatter that is... It is just destroying everything, dissolves everything that it touches. He then sees Superwoman, one of his arch enemies, one of the members of the crime syndicate, the evil version of Wonder Woman. He tries to warn her about the antimatter wall, but she uh, doesn't hear in time, and she is uh, destroyed by the antimatter wall. Sad, sad day. Uh, Luther says that even though, you know, he battled her and the crime syndicate. He never wanted them to die because he's a good guy on this earth. Uh, and he doesn't want the rest of the world to die either, but there's really nothing he can do. And he says he's going to go spend the, what's left of time with his loving wife. And who would his loving wife be? You guessed it, Lois Lane. Now, why didn't Lois Lane turn evil? I don't know, because it's only partially morality flipped. So uh, Lex Luthor is married to Lois Lane, and they just had a baby, Alexander. And uh, Lex Luthor says that he has a plan. Uh, there's hope, uh, at least for their son. Uh, unfortunately, not the whole world. Uh, we see Johnny Quick and Owlman get dissolved by the wall of force. Antimatter, sorry. Uh, we then see Ultraman empowering. They are trying. They're saving people to the best of their abilities. Uh, but they're still they're lamenting the fact that they are going to die. We then cut back to Lex Luthor, uh, and he is being watched over by the man in green, who we don't know his name yet. Obviously, I have told you, his name is Pariah, uh, but we don't know that in this issue. Uh, we see uh, Luthor putting his son Alexander into a sort of top-shaped uh, vehicle, uh, rocket-shaped, if you will. It's very, it's very reminiscent of Superman. Send, and his parents sending him in a rocket from a dying planet uh, to somewhere better. Lex has met other 
heroes from other Earths. Uh, this is after, you know, Crisis on Multiple Earths and uh, the crime syndicate coming to Earth-1 uh, in earlier years. Uh, so he knows that it's all about vibrating differently. These different universes, they all vibrate at a different frequency. And if he sets the rocket to vibrate at a certain frequency, he can send it to a different universe. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to send his only son, Alexander Luther, to uh, a safer Earth. Pariah is then transported to... Uh, and this entire time, Pariah's been watching Lex Luthor, I should say, and he cries. He cries a lot. Pariah cries a lot. He's seen a lot of death and destruction. He's very sad. He's a very sad man. He has eyeliner like um, like a goth kid in high school uh, because he's so full of emotions. Or emo kid, I guess. Goths aren't necessarily full of emotions. Emo kids are. Uh, Pariah is then transported to where Ultraman and Power Ring are, and he says that he he has he says his name he he, he says he he's called pariah and he mourns uh for this world is about to die uh even though he says his his is not the hand which slays worlds but he can do nothing more than cry which he's been doing a lot he's get better drink some water he's dehydrated probably ultraman says i guess this is it and he says to powering he's going to do what he's done all his life, he's gonna fight to the very end, and that's a really that's a really powerful moment for Ultraman, who is an evil villain, a bad guy, uh, the exact opposite of Superman. But it's it's cool that still at his heart, he still fights until the end, even if it's for selfish reasons. We then see Lex Luthor and Lois Lane uh, activate the device and shoot their son into space and into another universe, and. There's this really sweet moment. Uh, the antimatter wall is encompassing Luther's like hilltop mansion laboratory. He says farewell. Uh, may they treat you with love to his son as he's being transported away. And he turns to Lois and grabs her by the face and says, "Lois, our time together has been all too brief, but you've given me a lot. This uh, sorry, you've given me a love this old scientist never thought he'd know." And she says to him, and you've given me more love than I had any right to expect, my husband. I love you. And they kiss as the antimatter wall kills them. That's a really, really sweet, touching moment. I think it just, when I was rereading it before this, it, it brought goosebumps to my, my arms, you know. Uh, comics do that a lot. They're very emotional. We then see that world is, is encompassed by the antimatter wall and little Alexander Luther's rocket uh, travels through the multiverse, through the, the space between universes, and lands in Earth-1 universe on the satellite headquarters of the Justice League of America. But little did Lex Luthor of Earth-3 know that this satellite had been abandoned, has been abandoned by the Justice League. Uh, I don't remember why... I don't know why, but I know that their satellite era is over at this point in time, or they're just on a different satellite, or they're back on the Earth. I don't know. I don't remember. And it's not important. All we know is that this satellite is abandoned, so no one comes to get the baby. We will get back to him later. As we're transported to a different satellite, the satellite of a mysterious figure. And he's talking to a woman named Lila. Lila Michaels, who... Teen Titans annual number two readers will have seen before. 
and he is watching all these Earths be destroyed, and he knows that it's time. It's time for The Summoning, which is the title of this issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And he tells Lila it's time to go and get the the heroes and villains he has uh, calculated are strong enough to stop what's happening. Uh to these Earths and these multiverses. Uh, so he tells uh, Lila it's time to power up. And so she does. She powers up. She kind of does this thing where she goes down into this chamber of swirling energy and she kind of shoots off aspects of herself into different universes. And they are donned the, uh, uh, not disguise, costume and persona of Harbinger. So... As this is happening, the mysterious man is is going to go get the Luther child from the Earth-1 Justice League satellite. Uh, we then follow one of the Harbinger aspects to Gorilla City on Earth-1, where she meets up with uh, King Solivar. He has just uh, sentenced a villain, uh, a criminal of Gorilla City, to conversion. Don't know what that means. Probably means he's, like, converted into a non-evil person. I don't know. They're all mental abilities stuff in Gorilla City. Uh, it is revealed that Solovar knows his scientists because Gorilla City is this very super advanced society of hyper-intelligent gorillas that's hidden from the world in Africa. And his scientists have reported that his plan- the planet faces great deadly peril and he can't understand why man has done nothing little does he know that they don't know that it's happening yet because they're not as smart as the gorillas in gorilla city uh harbinger who has a sick costume by the way it's like this she's got a red cowl that goes down to her like uh neck uh and upper shoulders area with like an exposed face but like not completely exposed like there's a long nose part and the cheeks are kind of covered with red and her hair, her blonde hair is flowing from the back. It's really sick. And there's the torso is blue uh, with uh, one long sleeve and glove and one of the arms is exposed. It's very cool. It's very short. It's the 80s. And, and so ladies don't get to be super modest anymore. Uh, it's very it's very form-fitting. I'll post a picture of it because of her and Pariah because a lot of people probably haven't seen these two characters. They don't show up a lot. Uh, only in these big crisis events. And I think Pariah is in Dark Crisis, which is an event that just happened in DC Comics. I haven't read it. I haven't, I'm not up to date, unfortunately. But she grabs Solovar and transports him out of, uh, out of Gorilla City and this multiverse. She does say a very poignant line. She says, she says, you apes are more highly advanced than humans, yet like them, your first instinct is to violence. How sadly similar are your species. Dang. Got em. Cold. Cold bustin'. Uh, Harbinger is. We are then taken to the 31st century uh, metropolis, and we meet up with Dawnstar, a member of the Legion of Superheroes. She is uh, a lady with black hair she's got wings she's got a yellow costume it's very it's very very exposing and dawnstar is being taken somewhere by a voice she's being sort of 
ushered somewhere by this voice, this unknown female voice, and she is taken to Suicide Slum, which I feel like in the 31st century, Suicide Slum should A, be named something different, and B, not exist. Uh, she is taken to this sort of... I, I don't really know what it is. It's futuristic. It looks like... Basically, it looks like a storage facility, and she's going to open one of the storage units, but an arm comes out and grabs her and causes her to vanish uh, from the 31st century. We're then taken to 1942 on Earth 2, uh, which is close to where we are in uh, IBI Golden Age. So uh, we are we are uh, introduced to... Oh, what is her name? Danette. Danette Riley. She is assisting this uh, other woman in lighting a stove... It's revealed that she is a, a superheroine called Firebrand. Uh, she has fire powers, obviously, by the name. Um, time then stops, and uh, Harbinger calls to her as Firebrand, which is a secret identity, and then f- kind of causes her costume to appear. And I will say this, Firebrand's costume is really stupid. It's like red pants and a red sort of a bustier. Is that the proper sort of situation and and that is over top of a pink like long sleeve button down shirt and she's got a red domino mask it looks really dumb uh like why is she wearing just like a button down like an oxford shirt come on silly harbinger says that she needs firebrand's help and takes her hand and they are transported they they are said that they have two further stops to make before they meet the Monitor, and this is the first time that we are referenced about who the Monitor is. Um, presumably the, the shadowy figure in the satellite. We are then taken to another Earth at another time. Uh, this is presumed to be modern times of this Earth. Uh, and there's a hostage situation. And some, some gangstery talking gangsters... Uh, are holding this woman hostage and they're asking for a hundred thou or maybe two. Uh, but not not if this superhero who who swings down can help it. And that's Blue Beetle, Ted Cord. He's swinging out of the bug, which is his flying sort of crime-fighting vehicle. He does some quips. He does some acrobatics. He kicks some gangsters. And uh, he saves the hostage. Uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool introduction of Ted Cord to the DC universe. Uh, he seems very competent, wherein, uh, whereas in later in in the uh, history of the DC universe, he is seen as slightly less competent, so, sort of a, a less competent version of Batman, which is unfair to Ted Cord. Uh, Harbinger says that she needs his help, and he uh, he says, "Why not? It's a lousy night for TV, anyways." Uh, tr- so true. Even, even even well, maybe not. I don't know what was on TV in 1985, but there probably was some good good shows on. We are then taken to 45,000 years ago uh, on a world, uh, presumably Earth One. It's not said. And Harbinger is speeding across an icy desert looking for Arian, and saying that the monitor will be furious if she cannot find him in time. Arian is a very powerful sorcerer uh, of Atlantis. As she is in mid-flight, she is attacked by some sort of shadowy figure and presumably taken down by the shadowy figure. We're not told. 
We are then taken to Earth 2 in the present, whereas Firebrand came from 1942, we are now in the present of Earth 2. We are in an insane asylum uh, or a medical hospital, and we are, we are introduced to Roger Hayden, who was uh, the villain known as Psycho Pirate, who is able to manipulate the emotions of people around him, uh, even though doing so hurts him quite a bit. Harbinger uh, convinces him that she needs his help and that she will uh, assure him that he will feel no pain from using the Medusa mask, which allows him to manipulate people's emotions. She then uh, gives him back the Medusa mask and and we are transported away. We're now back in 45,000 years ago on presumably Earth-1. And we see Arian, this very sorcery-looking guy, walking around this frozen landscape. Um, uh, And he is uh, met by Harbinger. Uh, But she does something quite weird. She uh, uh, kind of basically attacks him and, and shatters the ice bridge that he is on. And he is falling to his death, but at the last second, she stops him from dying and uh, that's pretty weird. Uh, we are then uh, on Earth-1 in the present. Uh, in Media Res, we see Firestorm. And he is flying towards a prison. He uses his molecular manipulation abilities to slip through the wall. And he finds Killer Frost in a frozen prison. And he uh, sort of melts the ice freeing her. She attacks him because they are mortal enemies. And he stops her ice sickles with by turning them into flowers with his molecular manipulation. And he then talks to Harbinger, who, in a scene that we have not seen, has introduced herself to Firestorm and asked him to free Killer Frost. Uh, Psycho Pirate then steps out and uses his emotion manipulation abilities to change... Uh, Killer Frost's uh, emotions from hatred to love. She loves man, she loves Earth, and she especially loves her enemy, uh, which starts this sort of running gag throughout this entire event where she is in love uh, desperately, desperately, unrequitedly with Firestorm. It, it, It makes for some very funny moments. And she kisses him. She kisses him right on the mouth. Uh, uh... And she says, I don't want to go anywhere. Stay here with me, my love. And uh, Firestorm says, kissing her is like smooching with an iceberg. And that's funny. He says, now that I know what the Titanic felt like, Firestorm is a very funny guy. Uh, They are then, all four of them are transported away. We are then taken to the monitor inside his giant satellite. Uh, He does this sort of monologue, which I think is important if I say verbatim. Um, He says, Yes, hurry back, Harbinger, for I fear our mutual enemy may not allow me much time for planning. Already another Earth has perished, and five heroes I needed are gone. Thus I've dispatched your replicants to seek out others as replacements. Lila, when I first observed this Earth, knowing what was to come when I found you, a half-dead child floating lost at sea... When I saved you, nurtured you, watched you grow into womanhood these past 20 years. When I came to love you like the daughter I never had and never could, little did either of us know 
that one day you would be my killer. I fear for you, Lila. My life may be forfeit, but you, my dear, you hold in your hands the fate of the cosmos itself. The Monitor has these sort of foreshadowing abilities. He's this all-knowing sort of guy, and so he has foreseen his death at the hands of Lila, and that she holds the fate of the cosmos in her hands as well. We are then taken to inside uh, the Monitor's uh, satellite uh, in a different part, and we see a sort of splash page uh, of all of the heroes assembled in the satellite. We see some people that we haven't been introduced to. We haven't seen their uh, Harbinger interactions that have brought them here. We see Ted Kord. We see Dawnstar, Solovar, uh, Psycho Pirate. We see Firebrand, Firestorm, Killer Frost, and Arian. But we also see some characters that we haven't seen before. We see Simon, P-S-I-M-O-N. We see Geoforce and Cyborg. They're talking to each other. We see Superman and Obsidian. And uh, Superman is confused why Firebrand doesn't recognize her. And uh, that's because this is a Superman from the future of Earth 2 or like from the present of Earth 2. And Firebrand is from 1942. So she met the old, younger Man of Steel. Oh, I was sorry. I guess she didn't meet him, but the squadron didn't. They talked about all how great Superman is. But this is an older Superman from the present of Earth 2. Uh, we see Obsidian, who is from the Justice Society, and we see Dr. Polaris, who is a villain of, I believe, Firestorm, or, or maybe just a general villain. And they're all talking about, like, yo, what's up with this satellite? This is weird. Um, Solovar has a very poignant point. He says, the humans stare at me, then turn away. My presence here is uncomforting to them. Unlike us uh, apes, they have not yet learned to look beyond the form to the soul that lives inside. Humans be racist, you know? It's true. Uh, they're all, like, confused about what's going on and who all everybody is, to themselves mostly. And uh, Killer Frost says to Firestorm, tell me you love me as much as you I love you. And Firestorm thinks, I'm going to barf if this keeps up much longer. Then again, she's not all that bad looking. Maybe, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, Simon asks Cyborg and Geoforce, two people who he's fought before, for a truce. Cyborg says he can shove his truce where the sun don't shine. Uh, then Simon says, you silly little fool, I sense danger. We're going to be attacked. And they are. They're attacked by these shadow creatures. And no matter what they do, they're... All they at best they can just hold them off. They can't defeat these shadow creatures. Their attacks don't really do anything. It's all a big mess, and it doesn't bode well for this you know crackpot team of of superheroes up against this force if they can't even take down these shadows. They're doing their best. They're fending for themselves. They're they're not making much headway, and suddenly there is a bright flash of light, and these shadows uh, flee uh, just right through the walls because they can do that. They're shadows. And a dark figure in the afterglow of this bright light walks up. Um, and he says, and now let me properly introduce myself. I am the Monitor, and I have summoned you here because your universes are about to die. And it says at the bottom, this is only the beginning, exclamation point. 
Next, from dawn, from the dawn of man to the great disaster, crisis on infinite earths, the DC universe will never be the same. And that's the end of uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Now, I will tell you, it's going to be uh, quite a bit uh, until we get to Crisis on Infinite Earths number two, but that is what happened in, in, in real life. You know, you had to wait weeks, if not months. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a monthly, so. But there's a lot of other comics coming out at this time, so you might have read Crisis on Infinite Earths and then... You know, the next week you read a bunch of other ones, and then the next week you read a bunch of other ones, and and you had to wait a month for the next installment of this Crisis on Infinite Earths. Not to mention the tie-ins that come up, you know. Uh, but so it's going to be a while until we get there. But let's move on. That was a very great introduction to 1985 comics and Crisis on Infinite Earths. But now let's move on to another mainstay of this era in comics. DC Comics presents number eighty. This issue of DC Comics Presents was released on January 3rd, 1985, just like all the issues in this episode. It just is a reflex, so I have to say it. Cover date, April 1985. And DC Comics Presents, at least this iteration of it, uh, which ran from like 1978 to 1986, so there's not very many issues left, is a team-up book where Superman has a one-off adventure with uh, another superhero or a group of superheroes, uh, some some heavy hitters, uh, and also some less well-known uh, heroes. Uh, either to, I, I don't I don't know like the the, I guess point of it is uh, if it was to drum up interest in other characters and other comics series because it's superman and superman sells it's just a fact it he always does always will pretty much um but in this issue he is teaming up with the legion of superheroes and i'll be honest the legion of superheroes are not my favorite uh i will get i will get burned at the stake for that one uh but i just i've never been a fan and it's probably because i haven't read a lot of legion of superheroes stories so I just kind of find them kind of goofy because they're like boys and girls. Like, even when they're grown-ups, they're still called, like, Lightning Lad and Element Boy. Element, uh, maybe, maybe they change to, like, Element Man and Lightning Man. It's just, I don't know. It, something about them always just, like, turned me off of them. Uh, the authors of this DC Comics Presents are writer Paul Kupperberg, penciler Kurt Swan, Inker David Hunt, letterer Ben Oda, and colorist Eugene D'Angelo. Uh, now this uh, issue is called A World Full of Supermen. It involves the Legion and Superman going to a world full of Supermen. Uh, I, uh, before I read this, I thought that DC Comics Presents was sort of outside of continuity, or like it didn't line up with anything but I was initially I was immediately wrong uh, because this the first page references Legion of Superheroes number five so which is an issue that came up before this so we're not going to cover it but just suffice it to say in issue number five of Legion of Superheroes the Legion this group of five Legionnaires Chameleon Boy Element Lad uh, oh gosh Saturn Girl Shrinking Violet and Ultra Boy 
they go through some sort of portal to get back to their time because that's what the Legion basically always do. They get trapped in present day and then they get sent back to the future, blah, blah, blah. Time travel, which I normally like, but when it's used all the time, it's kind of lame. But <clears throat> something has gone wrong. They have not been transported to the 31st century or the 30th century, I guess, at this point because it's 31st once we as a society go to the 21st. They're in the 31st. But the 30th century, uh, they are in a sort of weird interdimensional place, and they're kind of confused about it until they come upon this what looks like a replica of a 20th century city just floating on this big rock in space. We're then taken inside of some sort of scientific room with a metallic-looking figure sitting at a, a viewing screen watching these legionnaires, and a tractor beam grabs the Legionnaires and pulls them down to the city. So clearly this metallic figure is the mastermind behind this city and this weird part of space. And so he's going to mess with the Legionnaires. Uh, so they're being pulled down to the city in the, with tractor beam. Ultra Boy uh, uses invul invulnerability to get out of the tractor beam to go destroy it so that he can free the rest of the Legionnaires. And as he's about to... First, he notices that this looks like a perfect replica of Metropolis in the 20th century. And uh, the only thing it's missing is Superman. Um, and as he's about to destroy the tractor beam, a figure swoops in and just hits him square in the chest. And who is it? It's Superman. Whoa, why is he doing that? Superman's like a good guy. Um... And Superman fights him and knocks him out with his super strength. And meanwhile, the other Legionnaires are still trapped in the tractor beam. They're wondering why Ultra Boy is taking so long to destroy it. Should be quick work. Switch over to super strength, punch it, stuff. Uh, when they see Superman flying at them in a sort of attack position, he unleashes his laser vision. On them, and Element Lad makes a sphere of lead uh, to protect them from Superman. Uh, but it's not going to last forever, so they have to figure out a plan. So, Shrinking Violet, Saturn Girl, and uh, Chameleon Boy, they are all going to do, in their own methods, uh, get out of the sphere and distract Superman so that Lead, that lead Boy, uh, that uh, Element Lad can escape. So Shrinking Violet shrinks, uh, Chameleon Boy turns into a small fly, and uh, Saturn Girl goes intangible. And they slip out and are about to distract the laser-visioning Superman when three more Supermen attack. And it's like, oh goodness, oh gosh, one was bad enough, now there's three? And another one? Four? It's too much. We're then taken back into the the like viewing room with this mechanical figure and it is revealed that it is a very weakened and uh, a weakened version of Brainiac and he references uh, a story that took place in Action Comics number 544, 545 and 546 which took place about two years publication wise before this and uh, this is where he's been sort of like recuperating and licking his wounds so to speak he is a robot so he doesn't really lick or have wounds uh until he's ready to attack uh to destroy the dark angel 
and uh, go up against the master programmer. So I don't know what that is, but hopefully in the future we'll find out. Uh, so he he says I need not dis- need not delay, and he needs to to get the dark angel here. Uh, we then are transported to Metropolis. Uh, it's uh, the nightly news at WGBS TV uh, because this is the point in time where Clark Kent is an on-screen uh, TV reporter, and that, so that's interesting. It's this is the modern age. He's not just some newspaper reporter. He's an anchorman. Uh, so he is done with his his bit of the news for the night, and he's gonna go be Superman, gonna go fight some crime. When he is hit with this massive headache, and Superman doesn't get headaches because he's Superman, and he realizes that it's an ultrasonic frequency beam uh, that is threatening to split his eardrums because he can hear so you know well. He tune he fine tunes his hearings to black out the painful frequencies, but he can still hear it. And so he dons his Superman garb and uh, follows the signal through space. We jump back to the Legionnaires, and uh, Chameleon Boy turns into this weird, like, looks like a tablecloth alien or tablecloth man, and sort of, like, envelops the three Superman that are attacking the three Legionnaires so that uh, Saturn Girl and Shrinking Violet can go save uh, Element Lad. Uh, Chameleon Boy is having a tough time because obviously it's three Supermen, and but luckily Ultra Boy it has woken up and has flown back to them, and they are fighting the Superman, and they discover that these Supermen are robots. They're biomechanical, you know, replicants of Superman. So they after they know how to you know fight them, they they make quick work of these four Supermen, and they go save uh, Chameleon Lad. Because the lead has melted around him, but luckily he used uh, some Freon gas, which you shouldn't breathe in, but, uh, you know, it's the it's the 80s. It's, people don't know that yet, I guess. I don't know. Uh, to keep himself alive inside of uh, the lead, uh, we then see um, the Legionnaires go to try to get the lay of the land and find some shelter in this 20th century metropolis replica and uh brainiac brags to himself like i can see wherever you go just to himself you know the legionnaires don't hear this and he then sends just like a huge army of superman after the legionnaires they make somewhat short work of them have no real problem now that they know they're not the real superman they're just robots and they're not very good at being superman they all use their different legionnaire powers to fight these Superman and, 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 and destroy all of them. And then we cut to Superman, who is traveling in between dimensions, following this hypersonic, ultrasonic beam. And he finally makes it to this weird pocket dimension and flies down into this fake metropolis. Brainiac sees this and is like, ah, yes, finally, the, my plan is coming together. I'm Brainiac. I'm so smart. So Superman's flying around, and he's like, well, this is weird. It looks just like Metropolis. And so he uses his supervision, his x-ray vision, to look through all the buildings to scan it for dangers. And he sees the five legionnaires inside of the Galaxy Broadcasting uh, Communications Building. And he's going to go in there and say, yo, what's up, legionnaires? What are you doing here? When another 
army of Superman come. And I don't know why Superman doesn't isn't immediately like, well, this is weird. He's like, oh, they just must be escorting me. No, Superman, don't be dumb. They fly at breakneck speeds through the walls of the Galaxy Communications Building, and the Legionnaires, of course, think it's an attack. So they uh, begin attacking all the Supermen and destroying the robotic ones. Ultra Boy and the regular Superman are fighting, and Ultra Boy is just not listening to Superman because Superman is saying things, and this is the first time that any of these Superman replicants have talked. So, I mean, Super, uh, Ultra Boy makes a reference like, oh, you must be one of the later models. Um, that blow should have, you know, scattered you into a million hundred pieces. Oh, and you can talk. So Ultra Boy just keeps fighting Superman, is just not listening. All the other Legionnaires are taking down robots, and Ultra Boy is still fighting Superman, not confused about why he is not breaking. Superman gets the upper hand for a moment, but then Chameleon Boy comes to Ultra Boy's aid and kind of grabs him in a sort of squid alien shape, and Ultra Boy punches Superman so hard to knock him out. And Ultra Boy's confused why he didn't break like all the rest of the robots. And that is when Brainiac makes his debut. Uh, He says that's precisely what I uh, had counted upon, humanoids. Um, And Brainiac has transported uh, this weird machine with a chair into the room. And he uh, grabs Superman, puts him in the chair, and reveals to the Legionnaires that since they've gotten here, he has been using some sort of mind control program technology for them to to associate everything that with superman as an enemy and i mean that's just you wouldn't even have to call it like brainwashing or anything or like mind control because all of these superman the robot ones keep attacking them so it's like yeah i see a superman i fight that superman but he makes the point of saying you know why do you think you haven't done anything to stop me from taking this real superman now that you know it's real superman You're under my control. And that's not great. So uh, Brainiac is going to, for whatever reason, break down uh, the Superman by his molecules up into his, you know, bonding elements. I don't know why. I guess to kill him. um, uh, Because he did say he wants the Black Angel to die. and, And he has referenced Superman as being this Black Angel, even though Superman is white. I mean, I guess he has black hair, but... Also, he doesn't have wings like angels do. Or thousands of eyes like biblically uh, accurate angels do. But I digress. Uh, now that the Legionnaires are free of their the control of Brainiac, they're like, oh, well, I can do, I can stop you now. So he's, he, Ultra Boys tries to punch the barrier around this machine, and he can't do it. An element lad sort of knocks on it and says, Hey, Brainiac, you might have miscalculated. It looks like your machine's also breaking down your component parts, your component elements. Uh, And you're going to destroy yourself along with Superman. And Brainiac says, Oh, no, you're right. Uh, My computing does not compute. And all of this has given Superman enough time to wake up from the uh, knockout from Ultra Boy. And so... Brainiac is scared now that Superman is conscious, and he says, Oh no, I calculate my chances of victory now at .083%. Unacceptable! Uh, So then he uses his laser eyes to destroy the machine and use that as a distraction to escape, to teleport away. Uh, Superman and the Legionnaires kind of talk, 
and explain what happened to the reader. And then the Legionnaires just walk through a door. They're like, now let's see what we can do to get out of this place. And time, they say, so they can get back to the 30th century. Um, and that's the end. Uh, it feels kind of textbook for what DC Comics Presents probably is, where, you know, Superman, there's a misunderstanding maybe, or some something that brings these two heroes together. They fight it, maybe one of them gets captured, or maybe they get defeated initially, and then they come back and they work together and they fight it, and they win. Uh, classic team-up book. Uh, the next issue of DC Comics Presents, number 81, is the most con- incredible team-up of all, it says. It says Superman and... Do you want to guess? I'll give you a second to guess. Yeah, you guessed it right. It is Ambush Bug. Yeah, and they're going to fight Cobra. Not Cobra like from G.I. Joe, but Cobra with a K. Uh, and that's the end. That is the end of DC Comics Presents number 80. I hope you had fun with that one. I mean, it was fine. It's fine for me. I hope it was okay for you. But let's move on to the final issue of this episode, Fury of Firestorm number 34. Uh, Firestorm number 34 uh, was released on January 3rd, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985, just like every single other issue uh debuts for the podcast of characters are firestorm ronnie raymond and dr martin stein they have had over 34 issues of adventures together at this point because there was a original firestorm series uh technically considered volume one that was only four issues got canceled and then they rebooted it and the Fury of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, uh, again. So uh, that's been going in this series for 33 issues at this point. And Firestorm has fought things like uh, Black Bison and Plastique and Le Flambeau and uh, Multiplex and the original Killer Frost. The original Killer Frost has died at this point in this series. And that gets us to what happens in this issue, which is the creation of the second Killer Frost, Louise Lincoln. Uh, But before we get into that, let's get into the uh, editorial side of this issue. Uh, The people involved in the making of this issue are writer and editor Gary Conway, penciler Raphael Kayanen, Kayanen? I'm sorry, inker Alan Kupperberg, Letterer Philip Hugh Felix and colorist Nancy Houlihan. Uh, it's a really it, the book the, the book looks really good. I will say that uh, the the cover is Firestorm and he's underneath this giant block of ice and it says Killer Frost lives again. The Big Freeze. It's pretty exciting. Also, Firestorm just has such a very distinct look and I think it's cool. Um, I think it's cool. He, I mean, he's a character straight out of the Atomic Age. He is he is nuclear power personified and it's cool that he's still stuck around even after sort of the fears of the dangers of nuclear radiation have sort of fallen by the wayside Uh, i think that's pretty cool 
Uh, so let's read this, just in case you don't know what Firestorm's whole shtick is. I'll read the little blurb at the beginning that most comics have. It says, Two men, student Ronnie Raymond and scientist Professor Martin Stein, caught in a freak atomic accident. They now share the ability to fuse their separate forms into a single being, possessing bizarre nuclear powers, as well as the fury of Firestorm, the nuclear man. That, if it was a cartoon, that's, I feel like that's how it would be. Like, kind of, uh, G.I. Joe. Um, so straight up, the, the beginning is just a picture of Firestorm. Uh, presumably from the last issue. Uh, and he is looking shocked and scary. He, like, has no pupils, and he never has any pupils, and that's really cool. And he's wearing his costume, and his hair is on fire. And he says, oh, no. And then Martin Stein says, oh, yes. And we see Martin Stein sort of disembodied blue head because he is how it works is Ronnie is the physical aspect uh, of Firestorm. He's the body because he is young and virile. And Martin Stein is along with Ronnie's, you know, brain and personality stuff. He is the knowledge. Uh, and that's how Firestorm works. Uh, that's how that's how Firestorm knows, knows how to change things, molecular structure into other things. So. We see Martin's disembodied head, and he says, Le Flambeau must have had a napalm-like explosive aboard that commercial dirigible, and now he's made good his threat to set Manhattan aflame. And we do see a big dirigible, and you'd think, oh, yeah, Goodyear blimp. Nope, Goodwear, with a W. That's how you get around copyright, my friends. Because we all, we all know it's the Goodyear blimp, but it's, the, but it's not. It's the Goodwear blimp. So we're fine, legally. So, Firestorm has got to stop this dirigible from raining hot, fiery napalm down on Manhattan. Uh, so, he is up there uh, doing his molecular changing stuff. And we are we cut to a group of teenagers, because Ronnie Raymond is a teenager. These are his friends. Jefferson Jackson, um, Doreen, last name, and this guy who doesn't like Ronnie... Uh, Cliff Carmichael. Uh, Cliff gets hit by a piece of napalm. They quickly put out the fire. They're like, oh gosh, what are we going to do? Uh, Firestorm is up there and he changes the uh, fireballs into snowballs. And it's great and it's fun. But one of the snowballs, or like the combination of the snowballs and the fireballs landing down, causes a Porsche. It says it right there on the back. I guess legally that's fine. You can put Porsche in there. Um, puts uh, a Porsche kind of uh, swerves and is headed right for Jefferson and Doreen and Cliff and and their other friend Stella. And Firestorm runs down there and makes the car, like, intangible or something. It's not really clear what he does exactly to it, but by the end, it's half stuck in the wall. I don't know what happened to the dude inside, but hopefully he's okay. But no one really seems to care about him. Uh, they all say, thanks, Firestorm, and Doreen has this sort of weird moment where she's like, why do I always think of Ronnie when I, when I see Firestorm? And so they both, they have this, like, they lock eyes, and, uh, Stella compliments, uh, Firestorm on his great biceps, uh, and Jefferson, who I guess they must be dating, says, Stella, come on, I'm right here. And so Firestorm flies away and is like, I'm so confused why Doreen would, like, suspect that 
he is Firestorm, that Ronnie is Firestorm. And uh, Martin Stein is surprised that it's taken her this long to feel some sort of connection between Ronnie and Firestorm. And Ronnie's like, ugh, how, you know? Uh, and uh, Martin says that people who share affection have a sort of sixth sense about each other. Because that's a lot of what Firestorm is. It's Ronnie, the teenager, going to Martin, the adult professor, for advice and, you know, stuff like that. They check in on the mercenaries that they had uh, captured in the last issue, Le Flambeau and his uh, underlings. And they see that they're all still chained up. That's great. And they send them off to jail. And we cut to a state prison in upstate New York. And we uh, see a guard talking to Plastique. Plastique is a female villain of Firestorms. She can touch things and uh, make them blow up. It's pretty cool. Uh, and the guard informs her that, unfortunately, her the men who said that they would burn Manhattan if Plastique wasn't let go have been captured. And she's like, ugh, Firestorm, dang him. She's mad. She's mad at Firestorm. She hates Firestorm. Everyone hates Firestorm. I don't. I think he's cool. Uh, so it's the next day at Bradley High where Ronnie goes to school, uh, and he's taking a chemistry test. And he's very he's very nervous because Ronnie is not a smart guy. He's a dumb jock, as he's called himself before. And so he's really, really nervous because he wants to he's a senior he's like close to graduation and if he doesn't pass like chemistry he's gonna fail and he's gonna have to repeat or go to summer school or something like that and suddenly ronnie realizes wait a minute i know this chemistry term deliquescence i obviously don't i'm not a chemist and he's and he's like oh yeah i know what that is and he writes it down and he feels really good about this test uh we then cut to martin stein he is sitting in a diner talking to colleagues um, and he, you know, says uh, he's he's kind of felt sort of adrift recently, ever since the accident, uh, the nuclear accident that he was in. And and his friends are like, yeah, you have been kind of distant and kind of out of touch uh, and stuff like that. And so Martin brings up what he has brought them to the diner to talk about, and he received a letter. Um, offering a position of visiting professor of physics at uh, the un- at Vandermeer University, which is in Pittsburgh, and they are in Manhattan. And he says, if he's imp- he's he does a good job, the university board is impressed. Next year, they'll be they'll name him head of the physics department at Vandermeer, and that's a pretty good that's a pretty sick gig. That's kind of what academics you know strive for uh, to be you know head of the department or at a really good department for their subject. So he's kind of, he's stressed. He doesn't know what to do. Um, Cause I mean, secretly he's like, well, Ronnie and I, you know, we're firestorm. So like we can't be, you know, different States be difficult to do our jobs. We then cut to uh, a fire at, um, at what, what is it at? It is at, could have sworn I saw it. No, it's just it's just a lab, just a vague lab, um, at a vague lab in New Jersey. And uh, we're talking to this this fire chief of this New Jersey town, and someone who works at the lab must be the head of the lab, and he tells the fire chief that Lois Lincoln was who's a brilliant 
researcher, brilliant scientist, she was trying to duplicate the low temperature experiments of Dr. Crystal Frost. And just to give you some information, Crystal Frost is the first killer frost. This low temperature experiment turned her into sort of a heat vampire and gave her ice powers. So this lab guy says, the only person that I could tell you about who would know anything about these low temperature experiments is Professor Martin Stein. He w once worked with Dr. Frost, so he would know. Because, like, this fire is really, really hard to put out. Like, they can't seem to get it put out. Um, so that's not good. Uh, we then have a little interlude, and I've never seen this in a comic book. Like, they specifically put interlude, colon, the Daily Express building where Ronnie Raymond's father struggles to settle into his new position as city editor. So uh, Ronnie's dad is telling this reporter, don't write your opinion, write the facts, go out and report. And then this curly, black-haired woman, she comes up to him and says, hi, do you have a minute? I'd love to talk to you about something. And she said, or he remembers that her name is Felicity Smoke. And now if you've re uh, watched any of the CW shows, you know that Felicity Smoke is in those? This is spelled exactly the same way. I don't know if this is their, like, inspiration for the character, because she is a uh, software computer software developer who Firestorm interfered with her old company and put her out of business. And so she's mad and is going to, uh, she's, she's uh, written up a class action lawsuit against Firestorm and is wondering if Ed wants, or whatever his name is, it just says Ronnie Raymond's dad, if he, oh yeah, Ed, if he wants the story. And he says, yeah, I, I want the story, but first let's talk about it say tonight over dinner and she says i thought you'd never ask uh and then it says end of interlude so uh back at bradley high uh ronnie has finished up his test and they're all filing out and he gets hit with a spitball and he looks back and he sees cliff carmichael smirking and he thinks oh this guy i'm gonna pound him i'm gonna pound his face and so they get in sort of a tussle before uh, Jefferson comes out and says, hey, he didn't, he didn't shoot the spitball at your neck. It was that kid Winkle, the one coach cut from the basketball team last week because Ronnie's on the basketball team. And uh, Cliff says, uh, well, Ronnie says, I'm sorry to Cliff. And then Cliff says, yeah, whatever. Forget it, Raymond. What else can you expect from a guy who thinks with his biceps? Do me a favor. Drop dead. That's so, like, drop dead is such a devastating, ugh. And thinking with his biceps, dude must have great biceps. That's like the second time someone's commented. Uh, then him and Doreen go on a walk. They used to be like kind of a couple. They used to be seeing each other. Doreen misses Ronnie because he's been really distant lately, probably because he's off being Firestorm. And she, you know, just one day, just Ronnie stopped calling, you know, and they stopped, they stopped hanging out, and she just wants to know why. Like, she, she saw him with this other girl, Lorraine Riley, and is like, okay, yeah, he's found somebody else, whatever. I just want to know why did, why did things with us end? Why did he stop loving me? You know, you, she wants closure. She wants some catharsis, which I completely understand. But before she can get an answer... Martin Stein, he must be able to do it from a distance because, like, in future depictions of Firestorms, they have to be near each other uh, to, like, combine into Firestorm. 
But this must be like they must maybe they have the Wi-Fi turned on on the Firestorm Matrix, so they don't have to be nearby because Stein just like turns it on and combines them into Firestorm. And Ronnie's like, "Why did you turn us into Firestorm?" And Stein's like, "Well, there's been a fire at the lab. Crystal Frost was turned into Killer Frost, and Louise, Doctor Louise Lincoln, has been recreating those experiments." And Firestorm's like, "Oh, okay. Well, we better, whew, we better get going." Um, so they get there and Ronnie brings up the fact that he knew all the answers on the chemistry test and Stein's like, I think it's time we examined this sort of fused state close, more closely after we've dealt with this. It's like, yeah, dude, I would have been doing that from day one. It's like, why are, why are we this way? Uh, so, uh, Firestorm heads into the fire and he turns the ground into fire hydrants that shoot water and kind of put out the fire. And then he finds a sort of dome of ice in the middle of the laboratory, and he sees uh, what he presumes are Dr. Louise Lincoln's assistants, but they are frozen inside blocks of ice. Um, So, you know, Stein is like, well, Killer Frost needed heat to survive, so Louise Lincoln must have started the fire to keep, you know, to keep herself alive. Um, inside this ice sort of thing. And suddenly the ice cracks and uh, out comes, uh, or out, a huge block of ice is thrown at Firestorm and he's sort of like crouched, cat, like holding it. And uh, then we see a, a woman dressed in a very elegant gown. Um, if if you've read, well, I mean, I will remember because I'm seeing it with my eyes, but you can't because this is a podcast. It is the same woman as the Killer Frost from Crisis on Infinite Earths. So that would mean that this issue of Firestorm technically takes place prior to Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Because if you remember, Killer Frost was already alive, or already back alive, yes, and was in jail. Uh, so uh, this storyline must take place before Crisis on Infinite Earths. But uh, the new Killer Frost is born, and she's going to have her revenge because this ice is going to make it difficult for Firestorm to use his powers because it's so cold. And that is the end. It says to be continued. I love a good to be continued. That's so nice. That's what's going to be so nice about these you know, post-crisis issues is that rather than trying to cram an entire story into 10, 12 even 23 pages. They're like, we can we can take our time. We can have all these good, important social beats and information dumps so that everyone knows what's going on. And there's like a backstory to everything and everything makes sense rather than, you know, cramming a story into 12 pages and having it be a little bit incoherent like we've seen in the Golden Age. I think it's just really, it's just going to be really, really good. It's just going to be really nice. Um, and then finally... Uh, I'm going to talk quickly about Joni Thunder number two. Now, this is a very, very short-lived, only got four issues, so we're not even going to talk about it after this point. Um, It is a reimagining of Johnny Thunder, but it's a woman, so it's Joni Thunder. Um, So she only has four issues. Uh, I guess people didn't, didn't like that shocker that, you know, comic book buyers wouldn't be up for a female hero or uh, a reimagining of a male hero as female 
I am shocked. And if you could see me, you could see that my face is deadpanned. I'm not shocked at all. But uh, that is going to do it for the first, the inaugural episode of Issue by Issue, colon crisis. Ooh, that sounds like colon crisis. I need to put more of a pause. Colon crisis. Because I'm not having a colon crisis over here, all right? Colon's fine. But uh, hit us up at uh, the Instagram, at uh, the Twitter, uh, review on iTunes, tell people like, hey, there's now two shows. One, one in the far distant past, and one also in the past, just less distant. And the host is really great and handsome and, and cool. Um, but yeah, and if you do, we'll, I'll, I'll probably read off some reviews uh, on here. Uh, I will be posting pictures of Harbinger and Pariah, just so that you can understand, you know, if you've ever seen them before, stuff like that, and, and how cool their costumes are, because they're pretty, they're pretty sick. But uh, until next time, I'm your host, Nick Byers. Thanks for joining me in this time-traveling chronological adventure. Uh, I'll see you next time. Bye.